to start with, I, I believe that a, a musician's relationship with time is predominantly a practical one. So I just want to um, make a few practical observations on, on the nature of time in music from a performance point of view. Um, probably need to make two things clear to begin with. Um, I'm talking about my experience as a performer and, and interpreter or recreator of music that is derived predominantly from a Western tradition, classical tradition. Um, and I'm not primarily describing the perception of time as experienced by the listener, because that's a, I think that's a fairly endless subject in itself. Um, I want to talk about the nature of time in music, its direction, how we perceive and keep time as performers, and how we keep time together in an ensemble. So first of all, the, the nature of time in music. Um, time is the one element that is common to all definitions of music, and of course there are many, many definitions. Um, another huge subject that we needn't touch on here, but obviously music has to have duration. Um, my personal view is that in a contemporary and global cultural context, the, the definition of music has to be reduced to one of organised sound with a beginning and end. <laughs> but as a performer, my main experience is within um, a more restricted cultural definition of music that can be described as having a combination of up to four basic elements. Um, melody, harmony, rhythm and time. And broadly speaking, this definition is adequate um, for most Western music from 15th century to halfway through the 20th. Um, so, um, the time or duration of a piece of music is usually determined by its tempo or speed, and that tempo is usually often determined by either traditional custom or specific instruction by the composer. Um, in my view, it is tempo that connects music to the physical movement or functions of the human being um, and those who have created or listening to it. <coughs> tempo, variation of tempo, or even its deliberate absence, um, is crucial to our perception of music and time in music. Um, the fact that tempo is often referred to as pulse is also an indication, I believe, of its human physical origin. <coughs> Traditionally, and... and and, you know, horribly unscientifically speaking, probably, um, apparently the, the, the average heartbeat of a person is, is 72 beats to the minute. I'll probably be shot down about that. But um, within a normal range, perhaps, of 60 to 80 um, beats per minute. Um, and you'd be surprised, or maybe you know already, the number of, of, of popular songs generally, but, but popular music in general, that fits within this range of 72, the, the natural heartbeat. Um, and I tested it the other day, I was sort of writing a bit of this in the cafe and I was being assailed by loads and loads of different songs and, and about 90% of them 72. <laughs> that what is it? I'll, I'll play you 72. Oh, I spotted <laughs> So that, that's, you can, you can really fit most music into that tempo. Most popular music, most well there's a large band of music that fits into this. The heartbeat, or unscientific average. Um, and, and actually, you can go much further back. Three blind mice, three blind mice, in Frere Jacques, anything like that. It's popular, you know, traditional music that, that fits into, into that tempo. Um, 
and so you know that's that's most dancers. You know, it's, it's um, most dancers. It's walking pace, strolling. If you double it, you get quick march. Um, so I, I see it as a natural human tempo. Um, and actually, I, I think that most people have a, a good sense, a natural sense of, of this tempo. You know, it's, it's inherent in people, like, a bit like pitch. People say they're tone deaf, but actually very few people are. It's, it's more how you connect with it somehow. Um, so I, I, just to reiterate, I, I think it's rooted in our everyday physical movement and this natural sense of, of pulse conditions our perception of time in relation to music. Um, and and you know, notwithstanding my sort of minimal definition of music um, as simply organised sound with beginning and end, um, audible and explicit tempo seems to be an essential element of most music from across the cultural spectrum. Um, one major exception is music that seeks to induce trance or assist meditation, perhaps. Um, although even that task is often assigned to rhythmic drumming to regular tempo. But it, it is this desire to escape time or to confound our perception of time that, that I find interesting. Um, but for a performing musician, um, a keen sense of tempo or pulse is a vital skill, every bit as important as an accurate sense of pitch and technical proficiency on an instrument or, or as a singer. We need to be able to interpret a wide range of tempo instructions or decide the pulse from the given notation. And furthermore, um, given the way Western music has developed over four centuries or so, um, the range of tempi that, that we have to assimilate and recreate as a matter of course um, is now very broad indeed. It goes way beyond the, the, the natural tempo. Um, at a basic level, we have to be able to visualise tempo. We have to be able to see tempo's distance travelled at a constant speed um, between telegraph poles, between rail joints as a swinging pendulum, swinging pendulum of a clock, or in relation to walking, dancing, or running. Um, and we have to develop it as uh, as an acute sense, uh, quite independent and, and proactive, as, as practical musicians, performing musicians. Um, you'll have noticed that my own pers personal visualisations of tempo are a bit old-fashioned, with rail joints and, and swinging pendulums. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, on how you visualise uh, tempo, speed. How do we internalise speed? How do we calibrate speed in, in a modern age of, of welded rail and, and electronic clocks and things? So um, I'm sure there are many ways. Um, but projection of different moods and character in music usually requires the tempo to be explicit through audible pulse and rhythm, and it's subtly varied. Um, as the Western tradition has developed, we are also sometimes called upon to transcend tempo, to create an illusion of timelessness. Um, some of the most profound statements, I believe, that the great composers are made when they have managed to suspend time for the listener. Um, and as performers, it's our job to project this successfully. Um, with regard to the direction of time, uh, as a performer, I sometimes see a composition in the form of an arch. I nearly always see it as a journey. Um, in sonata form, for instance, you set out in a, in a particular direction. You, know, you quickly establish the subjects, the, the, the landmarks. Um, you then might engage in a battle of ideas or at least a, an argument of some sort. Uh, and then you return home to familiar territory um, 
and the recapitulation, usually celebrating your safe return in, in a coda. And of course, Rondo, cyclical works, you know, that they're, they're, their intentions are fairly self-explanatory. But clearly, physical time has moved on along a straight line, um, whatever story the composer wants to, to spin. Um, um, even if we sometimes manage to bend the listener's psychological perception of time along the way. And above all, we're transformed by our musical experience. We can never be the same again having heard a particular performance. Um, we can never hear that melody, opening melody maybe, again, um, in the same state of innocence. Um, we may have, enjo- may have enjoyed it, been moved by it, shocked, surprised, uh, but we always react to it in some way, and that reaction is irreversible. Um, the next time we hear it, we'll, we will react differently. So, uh, as one of the fundamental elements of music, I believe that time always, and without exception, acts as an agent of transformation, both for the listener and performer. Beethoven, um, I, I use the sonata form, which, of course, is, as an example, which is strictly classical. Um, Beethoven, I believe, pushed sonata form and the fugue um, right to its limit, right to their limits, really, in, in his later works. And after him, in a sense, there, there's nothing more to say on, on either form of music. Um, he gave music the freedom to move forwards, to explore other structures and forms of expression, perhaps culminating in John Cage's 4 minutes 33 seconds, possibly. Um, and I also feel that he was the first to, to free music from the shackles of time, in a way. Um, his later work often has the sense of reaching up to the heavens, um, of escaping or, or floating upwards, um, free of earthbound rhythms and, and pulse. Uh, for, the, for example, at the end of his last piano sonata, Ops 111, the, the Dear Belly variations, he, he was just released somehow, he, and he released music with, with it. Um, the Ninth Symphony uh, and Missus Solemnis, they, they both end with rising scales, as if he's, he's always trying to break free. And, and actually, I, I think he achieved it. Um, Perhaps the best example is the slow movement of his penultimate string quartet, very dear to my heart. Um, the movement itself lasts nearly 20 minutes, but um, certainly as a performer, it never feels as though it takes that long. Um, so, in, in fact, for me, this work, you know, the Op 132 and the C sharp minor quartet that preceded it, both lasting well over 40 minutes um, with very little break, they're, they're the best examples I have of um, psychological time being detached. And physical time. Physically, you're exhausted as a, as a play. You know, it's, it's a hell of a play um, because they're both really hard work, but, but you'd never feel as if you've been playing solidly for three quarters of an hour. Um, I'm just going to play the um, final section of the slow movement of Op 132. Uh, actually, I'll start with the, just the opening theme.
so there we have this amazing theme, the Lydian <coughs> mode. Um, I see that as an arch. I mean, this is just one shape. It's this amazing thing. That lasts 50 seconds, just an opening statement of the theme. Um, but there's a very, obviously, very definite pulse in that, and however slow that might be. Um, but moving on, see how he develops it. And I want to see if um, you can experience the suspension of time in this next bit. It's probably not really possible because taking it out of context, out of context so much and putting it in, relying on recorded sound somehow, it's probably not the best thing. But see what you think of the, the final section. It's, it's his third development of that opening theme. Um, and see what you think.
I was going to ask you whether that felt like five minutes of music. Um, and I think it did. <laughs> it sort of proved to myself that as a performer, and it never feels that long. Um, <laughs> oh, actually, that's seven, that's seven minutes of music. Um, and actually, it felt, it felt like quite a long time. Um, wonderful, though, well, for me, it is. Um, but I can promise you, it never feels anything like that when you're playing. Um, so I've proved a point to myself, if not to you, anyway. <laughs> um, but moving swiftly on through the centuries, um, just one more, much briefer example of music. Um, the composer seeking to escape the constraints of time and pulse, I move on to um, Morton Feldman <coughs> and his Arctic <coughs> Light, written in 1985. And, um, uh, and I think he uses similar techniques to Beethoven in that it's in trying to create a sense of timelessness, which, which I think can be achieved in, in, in the context of a proper concert. Um, by layering... There, there's obviously pulse going on, but... but uh, roll on. very strictly notated um, play to a pulse, but it sounds random. The, 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 the intention is to, to, to create this, this sense of, of um, freedom somehow, and, and random pictures and rhythms. Um, so, um, uncommon to both examples is the fact that, and ideally unbeknown to the audience, that the player is actually counting furiously with all that slow movement, uh, music in the Beethoven, um, you know, the, these crotchets taking you know, uh, an age and then suspended notes, you're, you're counting like hell. And you have to subdivide, uh, you use precise subdivisions of, of the tempo in order to change exactly when required rather than on any indication from a conductor or any um, horrible animal like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you know, so you're, you're counting furiously, but but actually you're trying to create this seamless um, line of music, of melody. You're trying to conceal the underlying pulse. So um, it's this internalizing of tempo, um, and I mentioned the way we visualize it, whether it's telegraph poles or, or whatever before. But that's crucial to performance. And I mentioned that I sometimes see a work as an arch. And it usually helps to have some kind of picture or even just a, a sense of the shape of a piece of music before you begin to play it. Um, and I think that as performers we often have a sense of the, 
overall bulk of a piece before we set out on it? You, you, well, you, I suppose you're familiar with it through rehearsal, or, or, or you see it written down, and, and but but somehow you, you you can see its sort of place in, in time almost. You, you can actually you can visualise it. Um, but the, the nitty-gritty of performance involves constant subdivision of the pulse or beat into the smallest useful unit. Um, this subdivision has to be flexible, though, so that we can follow the shapes and contours of the music. It's no use simply setting the metronome and, and um, following it or for a conductor just to, to beat time. And, and you, have to sense, you have to have a sense of where the music is going. You have to have direction, always. Um, and you need to know what to point out along the way. Um, and I can apologise here for the bad pun on beating time that occurred to me when Yang asked me for a title for the talk. Um, I just wanted to make the point that although we rely heavily on a constant pulse of time, the beat of the music, also in practice we're always trying to subvert that beat. We're always trying to beat time, um, even if only ever so slightly. Um, music is often a conversation and, and we need to allow ourselves to draw breath and to punctuate and, and to emphasise. So um, I'll just play you a section of Bach. And um, with apologies in advance, because I haven't touched the cello for two weeks or more. <laughs> it's always nice to have a holiday. And then it's always horrible when you start playing again because nothing works. first suite. Now, I think that's probably about, probably about under 60. Maybe 60. So still within the range of the human heartbeat, I hope. Now I'll play it with the metronome and, and um, see if you can see how constrained it becomes. Thank you. 
it doesn't make a massive difference, um, but there are just certain points within it where you just need time to breathe and, and time to sort of point something out. Um, particularly, maybe. So that, that's how we, as performers, very subtly aim to subvert time and pulse. Um, and it's not necessarily a big deal either, really, but um, it's very important because if you constantly have to stick to an absolutely metronomic pulse, um, it does limit what you can do. Um, and I do a lot of commercial film sessions, and, and we always have to have headphones on with, with a click track. Oh, it's very, very boring and, <laughs> and um, mechanical somehow. Um, it's the only way to get things together. And certainly, um, you know, rock concerts, that's nearly all done to click track because there's so much. It's not just four guys, you know, Beatles or whoever, just with a drum keeping it going. It's actually masses of electronics and probably other tracks that have been pre-recorded. You need to keep it all together. And, and, um, and I recently did um, Peter Gabriel... Um, did some live concerts with him and, and the album, and the whole thing was done to click track because um, there's no other way of doing it. And just occasionally, you, you can sort of the, the click stops and you're allowed a bit of freedom, but um, not often enough. So that's sort of what I meant by beating time. Um, it's normally a, um, it's nice to be able to have a musical discourse and a conversation um, with either you know, in a solo piece or, or certainly with um, with um, fellow members of an ensemble. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, some people actually, I think my dad, who's a pianist, um, he gets very hot under the collar if people try and do things too freely. He, he's sort of from a tradition that actually regards sticking to the pulse as, as, um, as um, very important. Um, Anyway, this brings us on to our perception of time, or tempo and music. Um, composers are notorious for giving impossible metronome marks um, for their music. Beethoven's indications are nearly always too fast. Um, and apparently he added metronome marks in a fit of wild enthusiasm, having just been given the, the newfangled device. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in fact, conductors have often tried to perform the Eroica Symphony, for instance, at, at his speeds. Um, and it never really worked. It was a um, dotted minimum equals 60 for the first, the first uh, movement. Uh, now that doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem that different. But the minute you start get, getting into... Oh, actually, no, maybe it's a bit slow. Maybe it's not so bad, but there's a huge amount of controversy when I think Roger Norrington started trying to do the Eroica Symphony at Beethoven's tempo markings. And, um, but it, it does cause problems, that. Yeah, to, to really stick to that throughout the first movement. It, in a sense, it's because composers, or even as performers, if you think of it, if you see a piece of music, if you imagine a piece of music and imagine the tempo it should go, 
it doesn't take into account any practical considerations of, of, of performing it. Um, and, and also, it's mood. It depends what mood you're in, somehow, um, which changes from day to day. Um, you know, the, the listener is influenced by acoustic and familiarity with the music as well. And so that's something we have to bear in mind as performers. Um, you know, we've often played a piece at what we think is a modest tempo, only for someone to remark afterwards that it sounded as if we'd been, as we, as we had to train to catch. <laughs> so um, it's very hard to tell. Um, and that, that is something that I, I know very little about, being primarily a performer. Um, you know, it's, it's a difference between a perception as a player and as a, as a listener. Um, so I'd just like to finish with a few observations about playing together in time as an ensemble. Um, I think we take for granted that playing together is actually a fundamental of, of performance. Um, certainly orchestral performance, but, but it hasn't always been the case. And um, we, we can't really establish a true picture, obviously, without recorded sound. But um, you can read some alarming accounts of uncoordinated performances in the past. And I recently read of a, a, a Royal Philharmonic Society concert in the 1860s, um, which actually was a transitionary period where people didn't quite accept the need for a conductor of an orchestra, of a symphonic repertoire. It seems quite hard to sort of imagine that now, but, but there, was, there was genuine debate and argument about whether a conductor was needed. Um, actually, we still have that debate <laughs> quite often, unless they're good. A, a, a good conductor um, is someone who has technique and obviously musical knowledge and ability uh, is far better than a group of players on autopilot. Um, but too often they haven't got that ability, and so we go to autopilot. Um, but a good conductor is fantastic, you know, well worth their weight in gold. Um, but this review of the Royal Philharmonic Society concert, basically commenting on poor ensemble achieved due to the competing directions emanating from Mr Dragonetti on the double bass... Um, Mr. Lucas on the viola, principal viola, and from the leader, Mr. Bladegrove, all in contradiction to the ineffectual beating of Mr. Bennett on the podium. So that's four people all trying to sort of get their, get their way and try to sort of influence the, the, the ensemble and the time. Um, and we managed it slightly different in my quartet, luckily. Um, in a way, you know, there's a default position. We, we follow Roger, if necessary, um, but it's actually quite democratic. There, there are all sorts of times when you know, maybe I've got the tune or, or need to give a pulse, and so, of course, people will take the lead from me. Um, but we do have to work quite hard to develop a common sense of pulse, and um, when we're playing, we're constantly adjusting to each other. Um, however minutely, it's a bit like constantly synchronising clocks in every, every other second, almost. Um, and this usually works okay as long as no one does anything unexpected. Um, and it's amazing how you, re you rely on this underlying subdivision of, of pulse that we all, uh, I suppose, all, all we need to have the same subdivision. Um, it's a bit like, do you remember ticker tape experiments in physics where, where you could actually visualise acceleration by running a little truck down a, an incline with some ticker tape and a, and a regular... Um, Thing, clockwork thing behind it. And you, you get this sort of um, increasing distance between the dots. Um, 
in acceleration or deceleration. That's how we subdivide. That's how we need to subdivide in anything other than a metronomic um, capacity. Um, so, you know, and generally if we agree on musical direction, we'll, we'll, we'll be unanimous. Uh, one last observation. Um, our perception of tempo seems to change with age. And um, the age range in the quartet, now that Rose has joined, is, is now 22 years. <laughs> um, and it really is noticeable how we all have different um, different ideas of how a piece, how fast a piece should go. Um, I'm sort of stuck in the middle a little bit, but um, uh, you know, e each perception, each view is, is perfectly valid. But the sort of very um, deeply felt, you know, there's an instinct as to how fast the first move of a Haydn quartet should go, for instance. Um, and it doesn't do us any harm to examine our choice of tempo for any piece, but it, it, um, but it is a striking difference. Um, so um, that's it, really. I'm, I just hope that's shed some light on, on a musician's experience of time. Um, hope it's not too unconnected to the rest of the day, and, and apologies for my rather um, out-of-practice playing. <laughs> so thanks for listening.